If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. As always, we like to show some of our Patreon listeners some love, and today we're sending a big special thank you to our most recent $10 a month members. Jeremy, with an O, from Woodland, California, Lisa from Powhatan, Virginia, Mary from Grants Pass, Oregon, Jamie from Olympia, Washington, and Mandy from Eugene, Oregon. You all warm our little hearts in this blustering winter weather. If you want to hear your name whispered from the lips of yours truly, Josh or Alicia, you can sign up to be a member at the $10 level at patreon.com slash murder in the rain. Jeremy Spokane class today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. This had all happened so fast, Leon wasn't even aware that the family's sights had been set on him. So, as usual, he headed to Checkpoint Charlie for the night. Right away, he could tell something was up. Pulling Leon aside, James talked to him, possibly about the rumors that had been created by Grant. Leon assured him he would never do anything that would compromise the safety of the organization or its mission. So certain was he that something bad was going to happen, Leon shared his fears with a camp sister. Hoping to escape whatever was coming his way, Leon tried to leave, saying he was going to the house in St. John's. Perhaps in hopes it would keep their violence at bay, Leon said he was planning on leaving for Seattle on the 28th. But Grant wanted to have a quick word with him before he left for the night, so he walked with him back towards the camp. On one of the surrounding paths, they encountered Tinan, a family member. With a wooden staff of his own, he struck Leon, breaking his finger, a defensive wound, I would assume, before cutting his face and hitting his ribs three times. 15-year-old Leon couldn't believe his once friend was now beating him. Witnessing the attack, a sister begged for Tenen to stop the brutality, but her voice was drowned out by the sister who reminded her that his actions had brought this on. Seeing that the course was set, Grant and Tenen left the camp for the night. Grant, as XO, gave James Highlander the order to kill Leon. Left in the area to do the job were James and Skyler, or now as characters in another Rambo game, Highlander and Breeze, who was now participating in her second murder in as many days. 17-year-old James happily took out a dagger, asking Leon, Do you know what XO wants me to do? 15-year-old Leon responded, But if you kill me, I'll go to hell. To which James responded, Tell them Highlander sent you, before thrusting the knife into him. Leon dropped to the ground, face first. Leon's 15-year-old girlfriend, Breeze, rolled him over to face Highlander. 
gripping his wrists so he couldn't move. With his hands held over his head, Leon had no way of fighting back. He simply looked up to his girlfriend, who was pinning him down, and begged, I love you. Help me. She responded to his pleas by saying, Drop dead, Fred, a throwback to his pre-murderous nickname of Skinny Boy Fred. James stabbed Leon 11 times, five of which landed in his heart, but even that didn't kill him. Perhaps the stabbings had tired James out, so he grabbed his dog chain necklace, placed it around Leon's neck, and twisted it. Even though he hadn't been present for Misty's murder, James was reenacting it, twisting the chain, holding it for a while, letting it go just long enough for Leon to get a gasp of air before twisting it again. Skylar was cheering James on, ignoring that her boyfriend was staring up at her as the life left his body. It was another torturous death, not that different from the one Leon himself had put Hal Charbonneau through. Once again, the family was left with a body to deal with, and once again, a piece of plastic was used to wrap the body, which was then tied up with wire. James then dragged Leon's body to a shrub where he stacked weeds and a six-month-old dried-out Christmas tree on top of him. Going back to the camp, James tried his best to clean up, which mostly consisted of ripping out the grass that had been covered with Leon's blood and setting it on fire. All of that stabbing had worked up James's appetite, so he went into town to have spaghetti while Skylar was left to keep a lookout around her dead boyfriend's body. In the city, James was asked by some kids about the blood on his clothes. He claimed to have killed the Mexican. Perhaps he hoped he would not only get street cred, but it would keep that other group of guys from messing with them if word got out that he confessed to murder. When Grant and Tenen returned, they helped move the body with the aid of Tenen's staff. Like a hog, they used the wire to hang Leon's wrists and ankles from the staff, and they carried him to the truck. When they dropped him into the bed, a homeless man in the area that was later found to have been a witness said that the body spewed blood. Ooh. Riding to North Portland, the group in the truck made jokes about dead Fred, James even propping his feet on him as though it was a hunting trophy. By now, it was getting late and everyone was tired. So instead of carrying Leon to a wooded area or a discreet location, they settled for a shallow grave in a North Portland lot. The 15-year-old boy was taken off the staff and put face down in the dirt in a grave that was only a few inches deep. Unlike Leon, who had not only followed XO's orders, but had stayed quiet for the most part, James couldn't contain his ego or excitement. He told everyone not only about his part in killing Leon, but that the family had killed Misty. By the following night, celebrating again with a bonfire, James and Skylar were now an official couple. I suppose murder would create some sort of trauma bond. Instead of giving her a class ring or a school jacket, she was given and then wore James's chain necklace to show their commitment, the same one she had watched him use to murder Leon. James's arrogance couldn't be contained. He had finally committed a murder, making up for all those stories he had been telling before. He was now not only a full-fledged member of the family, but a commanding and feared leader. He would demand meaningless errands from some of the girls just to express his dominance. It didn't take long for everyone to become annoyed at his behavior and start to distance themselves. Feeling powerful and paranoid, James and Tenen started to tell the rest of the family they had compiled a list of everyone who knew about the murders, and they would all need to be killed. That did it. These were just kids. While the Rambo summer had seemed thrilling and participating in beatings had been exciting, they weren't interested in being the next one on the list. So on August 6th, just nine days after Leon was killed, a small group of family kids went to the local police station and demanded to speak with homicide detectives. Wow, I didn't see that coming. Right? Kind of a twist that they were like, 
some of them finally realized like, wait a minute. Well, I think they're smartening up and they're like, no one can win with these people. Yeah. Not only is everything they're saying a lie and we know it, but now we're watching all of our friends get picked off mm-hmm. and we know that they made up the rumors. And it's clear that you could have a relationship with someone and the next day they can turn on you. Yeah. Yeah. Probably because they weren't being taken seriously, the kids had to wait some time to be heard, but eventually it was worth it. They not only shared the story of James and Leon, but to prove what they were saying was true, they took investigators to Leon's shallow grave, where he was already severely decomposed. Leon was eventually given a final resting place in the Willamette National Cemetery, where his Vietnam veteran father would join him in 2008. Police were immediately on the lookout for James, who they located and arrested the next day in Pioneer Square. They had caught him just in time. They had found a recently purchased Greyhound bus ticket in his pocket. Ooh. And who knows where he would have been then. Seriously. James spoke with police, but only as Highlander. While police felt he was not very bright and had no conscience whatsoever, they struggled to believe him when he claimed to have only been a witness to Leon's beating. Hoping to break him, they took him back to the camp and asked him to walk them through the events of that night. Feeling like this was all part of his operation within the Rambo games, James was all too happy to essentially rat out the family. Maybe not about the murder, but at least the location of where they were living and all of their belongings, which led officers to blood particles, bloody jeans, and a piece of chain, all of which they gathered as evidence. He's not very bright, is he? And isn't that like the biggest rule? You don't yes. say where we are yep. and you don't talk to cops. And he's like, well, he, oh, yeah, I'll do both. He was breaking quite a few rules. He got cocky. Yeah. Getting to play even more games for the operation, James offered to wear a wire during his next visit to the St. John's murder house, which he did. And as he left the house, police swarmed Grant as he had been pointed out by the family as the leader of not only the group, but the murders. And funny enough, James thought that wearing a wire was his way of being nice and getting away with murder. So he just walked away from the house. And it wasn't until he was a few blocks away that the police realized that he assumed he was out of their custody. (laughs) They caught up with him and reminded him that's not the case. He's like, okay, I helped. I'm clear, right? Yeah. Sorry about that murder, but I wore a wire. That's the plea bargain, right? Deuces. Interviewing James again, he confessed to killing Leon, but instead of it being out of his duty to appease his chosen leaders, he had a different story. He claimed to have only killed Leon out of fear that there would be severe, perhaps even deadly consequences from XO if he didn't follow through with the order. He was fearful that it was a case of Leon or himself. When police asked him why, once he was left alone, he didn't just run away, the teenager responded, yeah, Police also confronted him about the fact that the kids they had questioned all knew James was the killer because he wouldn't stop bragging about it. That he flat out denied. After Grant was arrested post-wiretap, he knew there was no getting away with what he had done, so he cooperated right away. The cops didn't even realize the family was involved in a multiple homicide case before Grant offered to take the officers to where he had disposed of Misty. It had only been a few weeks, but when they found her, the heat and water had badly decomposed Michelle's body. Misty Michelle Largo was only 18 years old. Her body was returned to her family, and she was put to rest at Skyview Memorial Park in Pendleton, Oregon. Most information and articles about her simply refer to her as a transient woman or homeless youth. And while we don't have information about her life, she was more than just the girl that was tortured to death. She was young and lost, 
but she was loved. Tenen was also brought in. He was not as open as Grant and James had been, so nothing came of speaking with him. Interviewing witnesses, a woman who had encountered Tenen at a shelter claimed that right before the murders, she had seen him threaten to use a hunting knife on a woman. As the investigation came to an end, James Highlander Nelson was arrested for the murder of Michael Leon Stanton. Even though no deal had been made, James was shocked at his arrest. He assumed that since he had not only complied, confessed, and wore a wire, he wouldn't be facing any legal troubles, you know, for stabbing a 15-year-old to death. On August 10, 1992, Grant Charbonneau was arrested. On Tuesday, November 23, 1993, his trial began. The 21-year-old was facing nine counts of aggravated murder related to Michelle and 11 other charges related to Michelle's torture. He would also face charges for the murder of his father, Hal, and Michael Leon Stanton, but those would be separate trials. On August 29th, Gregory Wilson was in Eugene as an occupant of a vehicle that was suspected of being involved in stealing beer. After the car was pulled over and Greg was discovered, so was the warrant for his arrest. He was brought to Portland without incident. In his trial, prosecutors claimed that Grant was accompanied by family members Marvin Al Ty Juan Smith, 24, Angela Marie Kincaid, 16, Leon Fred Stanton, and Greg at the St. John's house when Michelle was tortured and killed. They also brought up the connection between Leon, his murder, and the murder of Hal. The defense attempted to suppress the statements Grant had made to the police during the investigation as they implicated him in the murders, but the request was denied and the statements were allowed. They made the point that while Grant was first being interviewed, there were vague statements made to him about being able to speak to a lawyer, responding to questions of, can I talk to my lawyer tonight? With, yes, if you want, if you choose to do that. The detectives claimed it was Grant's unclear questions that had them confused. Grant's team argued his rights were ignored and the statements he gave to the police shouldn't have been permissible as they were made before Grant had been given his Miranda rights. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. When somebody brings up, when can I talk to my lawyer? Does that not uh, allude to the fact that they want to be talking to their lawyer? I feel like if the word lawyer is said, they need to allow the done. Like, why would you want to jeopardize your case? That always baffles my mind. I know. I get that you want to cut the corners and, and just get it and be like, yeah, this is the guy. But part of me wonders if they're just so amped up, like they're on the verge of being right. able to catch this guy. It'd be easier if he admits to it that they that they get pissed. Yeah. Or they just don't care. They're like, oh, that won't matter. But it did. But it always matters. It always matters. <laughs> it always matters. So many important cases were thrown out because somebody fucked up and yeah. didn't get the lawyer. Yeah. As for the defense's strategy, they decided to focus on Grant's difficult childhood as a reason or excuse for his actions. Greg and Grant were on trial, separately, but at the same time, although I did find an article that said co-defendants, so it's all a little muddy. Both had witnesses, from the family and from the group that had been at the house, who placed them not only at the scene, but they told the stories about the leaders of their organization and how they were the ones responsible for Misty's murder. Greg would later say his lawyers dropped the ball by not calling his friend from Gladstone to testify, as she had been with him the night of the murder. One crucial witness in Grant's case was Marvin Al Taiwan Smith, one of the members who was at the house. He had made an agreement with the state that they would drop all but one of his charges if he would agree to testify. 
When Marvin was on the stand, the defense asked him about the plea agreement. With that questioning, the plea was introduced as evidence. Speaking about the plea also presented an opportunity for the state to share that they felt Marvin's statements were viewed as being honest and truthful. The allowance of that statement, the honest and truthful part, would come into play later. In October 1993, both Grant and Gregory were found guilty of the aggravated murder of Melissa Misty Largo. Both were then sentenced to death, as capital punishment was still an option in Oregon at the time. Three years later, in the summer of 1996, everyone was shocked when the Oregon Supreme Court overturned both Greg and Grant's sentences. Disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. Figuring out just what happened in these cases was very tricky, as there are a lot of motions, and they are from several years ago. The flaw, as the court deemed it, surrounded the testimony of Marvin. His testimony provided crucial details of both cases of which he was the only witness. In an opinion from Justice Susan Graber, she stated, A witness's testimony or an exhibit may not explicitly and directly contain an opinion as to a trial witness's credibility. For Gregory Wilson, only the murder charge was reversed. The kidnapping, abuse of a corpse, and assault charges remained as other witnesses besides Marvin had testified against him committing those crimes. Grant's earlier statements made while being interviewed would come up in 1996 during an appeal. Grant would claim he had asked to speak to a lawyer when the police started interviewing him. The prosecution claimed that Grant was vague about when he wanted to call a lawyer and he continued to speak with the officers and even answered questions. Even after being read his Miranda rights, he talked, eventually making 317 statements that implicated him in the involvement of Misty's murder. On December 16th, Grant XO Charbonneau was found guilty for his role in the torture and murder of Melissa Misty Largo, and after a few hours of deliberations, he was sentenced to the death penalty. Hearing the news, the executive officer hung his head and fell back in his seat. In February, he avoided a trial and admitted to his involvement in the death of his father, Harold, and family member, Leon. He remains behind bars at the Oregon State Penitentiary, with his death sentence being commuted to life. Okay, stay patient with me. After two months, I was finally able to contact one of the lawyers connected to Gregory Wilson's trials, and I was so hoping he could help me decipher this case info and help me better understand how all of this legal wrangling took 18 years. But unfortunately, when he reached out to his client, Greg denied him permission to speak with me about it. So here I go as a non-lawyer with the best explanation of what happened. Eventually, Greg was facing a third trial, which he petitioned. So how did it get that far? Well, in 1993, Greg was convicted for Melissa Misty Largo's murder, which included nine counts of aggravated murder, three counts of kidnapping, and one count of murder, assault, and abuse of a corpse. That verdict landed him the later overturned death sentence. In 1997, there was a resentencing for the remaining convictions of kidnapping and assault. During this time, Greg sought post-conviction relief with a writ of habeas corpus. Those were denied. He continued serving those remaining sentences while awaiting a new trial for the murder charges. So you might be wondering, like I was, how this didn't all qualify for double jeopardy. Well, we'll get to that. So in August of 2000, Greg went to trial again to face nine aggravated felony murder charges. The counts were as follows. Number one, 
he was directly responsible for and intentionally killed Misty during a kidnapping. Two, same as above, but a first-degree kidnapping, which caused physical injury. Three, same as above, but with the purpose of terrorizing. Number four, intentionally killing Misty in the course of intentional torture. Five, that she was killed in an effort to conceal that she had been kidnapped. Six and seven, again, that her murder was to cover a first-degree kidnapping. Eight, that he killed Misty Largo to conceal a third-degree assault. And nine, that Misty was murdered without justification. Other lesser charges were involved within the felonies, like along with felony murder, there was attempted aggravated murder and attempted murder. I would have to assume those were maybe related to the multiple strangulations, beatings, and suffocations. The jury would also be aware that he had been convicted in his first trial for abuse of a corpse, kidnapping, and assault. Going in front of a jury yet again, Greg wasn't fond of the new law that had been put in place in 1997. It stated that juries couldn't decide on lesser offenses unless the greater ones were acquitted. Basically, they couldn't say he was guilty of the attempted murder before going through the intentional murder charges. It took days of deliberation, but the jury found Gregory Wilson not guilty on charges four through eight, the charges that said the murder was committed to cover up the assault and kidnappings. He was found guilty of the lesser charges related to those, though. As for the ninth charge, intentionally murdering Misty, he was acquitted but found guilty for the attempted murder. The jury was then deadlocked when it came to counts one through three, the terrorizing, kidnapping, and murdering of Misty. Because they were deadlocked and hadn't acquitted, they couldn't then rule on the lesser charges related to those felonies. Hopefully that all makes sense to you guys. With that, Gregory Wilson was acquitted of six of the felonies, but was charged with the related lesser crimes, and he was set to go to trial yet again to face the counts one through three. In 2003, those lesser charges carried a possible 30 years behind bars for the attempted aggravated murder and attempted murder. As I said before, I wasn't sure about the aspect of double jeopardy in this case, and his lawyer Richard Wolfe felt the same. He tried to argue that this would in fact be double jeopardy based on the fact that he was going to be facing the aggravated murder charges, but those outstanding elements had been acquitted by the jury. Basically, you can't be found to have not killed someone to cover up a kidnapping if there isn't a guilty verdict on the aggravated element, the kidnapping, and a federal magistrate agreed, saying it would be unconstitutional to try him again. The judge explaining that in order to prove Greg was guilty of aggravated murder, it had to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he had killed Misty. Another judge got involved and he disagreed, ruling that it wasn't unreasonable for the jury to be inconsistent, but that that didn't mean the other charges didn't apply. Then another appeal, another court. They reversed the district court's ruling, concluding that, quote, Having once been acquitted of the lesser-included offense of intentional murder, Wilson will not be retried on charges of aggravated felony murder. Unable to try Gregory for the aggravated murder, the state declared that they would be trying him for the lesser charge of felony murder, the charges from the first three counts. Removing the aggravated aspect removed the concern of double jeopardy. Greg objected, but it was denied.
Through the years, Greg remained in jail but petitioned being there as part of habeas corpus or his wish to be brought in front of a judge in efforts to either get his trial moving or to be released as he didn't see a need for a retrial for the murder charges. His petitions continued regarding double jeopardy and the way the juries were given directions about what charges they could find guilt in regarding the acquit first instructions. He also argued that the legal hoops were hindering his right to a speedy trial and that the prosecution was using information that it had, quote, intentionally abandoned over 13 years prior. It took dozens of pages and plenty of referenced cases, but his petition was denied. A major factor being that Greg's concerns for double jeopardy hadn't been brought up in a previous petition, so Greg received this from the court. For the reasons set forth, the petition under 28 U.S.C. 2241 for writ of habeas corpus is denied, and this case is dismissed. It is so ordered. In 2009, it was looking like Greg was headed to a third trial. If it had taken place, his attorney was going to argue that Grant was the one who was concerned about Misty learning about or spreading the word regarding Hal's murder, so he ordered her to be killed. Greg hadn't had anything to do with Misty, Hal, or Leon, so he was not guilty of her murder. Before that third trial could begin, in February 2010, Gregory Wilson took a plea deal. No contest to manslaughter. After 18 years of him being charged, tried, held, sentenced, there was finally more justice for Misty. So at least he saved everyone from going through the trial and subsequent paperwork. Robert Lineweber, Multnomah County Deputy DA at the time, said, quote, That was a motivator, I think, for everybody. It has been a long and thoroughly reviewed case through the appellate process. In the end, Greg, whispers C.O. Wilson, was given 21 years. At that time, he had already served 17, and he was released just a few years later. Once out of prison, he tried to make things better for his community, even becoming a motivational speaker. But, as you may recall from the first episode, things took a turn last year in Redmond when he pulled out that pocket knife. M. Josh, I would love to hear your thoughts on him doing his time, then being charged with a Measure 11 crime for the stabbing, which didn't even send the victims to the hospital, and now he's currently serving a 17.5-year sentence. You know, they, they were able to say, you know, he served all these years for a murder, and now here he's out for just a few years and he's harming people again. Mm-hmm. I find myself a little torn because if you look on paper at what he was part of, it's like one of the most horrific deaths I've heard about in a long time. But he did go to jail and he was there for those 21 years. So he did do his time. If someone was arrested just for what happened in Redmond, where the guys remember they didn't go to the hospital, they went out camping the next day, they weren't really affected by it. I don't know if that's 17 years. I get a little, I, I kind of go back and forth on it. <laughs> yeah, hard. It's like the first sentence didn't seem long enough. The second right. one seems too long. Exactly. So does it equal out in the end? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Man, yeah, I, that might be it. Not that that's fair, but I, not that any of this is. Well, but. was it fair for them to kill her? No. Exactly. So I don't exactly. know if I feel too bad about that. Yeah, I guess just looking also, at that history. torture killings are far worse than some other cases that come up right yeah. so it's like yeah. this added level of monstrosity but it is kind of like okay if that was just someone else 
getting 17 years. It so also goes to show you like how it varies, how it yeah. changes with based on your lawyers, based on the police involved, based, on, based the judge. on the judge. Yeah. And sometimes it isn't fair and there's never going to be a perfect solution. Yeah. Uh, so it's like we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Uh, but it is it's hard to swallow. It is. Greg Wilson was the last of four living defendants in Largo's death to have his case resolved. A fifth, and I'm not sure who, was murdered. As for James Daniel Nelson, a.k.a. Highlander, possibly because he was a minor, I couldn't find information related to a trial or conviction, but he did go to prison for the murders of Leon and Misty. After nine and a half years and being bounced to different prisons, he was paroled in March of 2003 at 28 years old. James struggled a lot with the rules of prison. Some of his interactions included being in possession of pornography, making homemade Dungeons and Dragons pieces out of Tylenol. There are no fantasy games allowed in the clink. He insulted visitors, attempted to start a riot when he saw cafeteria workers not wearing appropriate hairnets. He talked fellow inmates into stuffing their toilets with towels. In 1994, James beat a fellow inmate. This was not a fight. James was just beating the man. Guards stepped in and tried to physically restrain James. As they did so, he punched a guard in the head, breaking the guard's glasses that then cut his nose. That move sent him to segregation for 166 days, or a little over five months, and he was charged a $200 fine. Remember, at this time, he was only about 18 years old. Just three months later, James hit a guard who was checking his cell. This time, it was isolation for 120 days and another 200 bucks. The following October, James again attacked an inmate. This time, it was only 49 days in segregation with a matching $49 fine. Other actions that got him in trouble? A racially motivated assault of a black inmate. He broke a sprinkler, had inmates promising allegiance to him. He started a fight against a man who is wearing a different white supremacist group marker. And he made a lot of racist remarks, mostly to black and Jewish people. In all, there were about 50 disciplinary actions taken against James Nelson during his time in prison. In 2001, as his mother was dying of cancer, he promised her he would change his violent ways. She passed away, and he was moved to the Oregon State Penitentiary. He served 28 days in maximum security, but then it seemed he had stuck to his word and maybe had changed his violent ways. With only two years to go before his first parole hearing, he did what so many prisoners do. He found religion. He started to take religious classes and attend services. Unlike most prisoners, he didn't find Christianity. He found Wicca and paganism. He started to proudly carry around documents about Wicca, along with his books about Hitler. Obviously, religion doesn't make a person better or safer, and I want to be clear that there's no judgment about him being drawn to those religions. For crying out loud, most of the Christian holidays we celebrate came from paganism anyway. Then came his parole. On March 24, 2003, James Daniel Nelson, even with 50 infractions on his record and no rehabilitation, even though he spent the last of his teen years and all of his 20s behind bars, was released to the world. Being that he was originally from Sacramento, California, he requested to be able to move there to be with his brother and stepfather. The approval for the move needed to come from California, and since he wasn't given it upon his release— he had to wait in the one place he didn't want to be, Portland. Oh, like when he was on parole, he couldn't leave 
Yeah, so area. he was released from prison and he was like, can I go to California to be with my family? And they were like, well, California will have to decide. And there that was no sucks. answer. So he was just sitting there like, okay. And while they had rules in place that he couldn't contact Leon's family or anything, there was nothing about not being downtown, not being around street kids, not engaging. Yikes. There was no... That's just like a recipe for someone to fall into old behavior. Exactly. Which is exactly what he did because nothing had changed downtown and that was all he knew besides prison. So he found the street kids of Portland. Imagine if they had let him go to California. I wonder how different it could be. Yeah. I don't know why if you have family in place. I mean, I guess California is like, no, we don't want to add a... They don't want more. They already have enough. Yeah, we don't want to put a convict in our census like even though didn't they just let go like a thousand people charged with crimes against children I don't know if that's accurate but I'll look it up oh here we go 2022 California released 7,000 child sex offenders after less than a year in jail a heartwarming tale based on like what was the purpose I don't know they've been letting people out of prison like crazy well I mean I know everywhere is overpacked but it's just that's not the ones I'd let out. Yeah, no. How about all the drug guys? Exactly. That it doesn't really affect people directly like that. His parole conditions consisted of no alcohol, no weapons, and no contact with Leon's family. He had a parole officer and did have to check in at the Harbor Light Agency at night. Other than that, there were no conditions. Nothing against hanging out with street kids. Nothing about not going downtown. He was on his own to do whatever he wanted. Revisiting his old life, James found that not much had changed in the decade he was gone. The kids were still into punk and continued to hang out in the square. The values of racism and homophobia hadn't changed either. Gay males were still not allowed and gay females barely were. Checkpoint Charlie had been moved so condos could be built. A beautiful circular vista was built at the waterfront covering up the land that had once been doused in Leon's blood. Without the option of leaving town to be with his actual family, James was lost and trapped. So he did what he knew. He started talking with the street kids. It hadn't taken long for his notoriety to be known within the community. He had done hard time, which drew the kids' attention. James loved the recognition and would gladly tell stories about how lucky he was to have never had to share a cell with a black man because he was so outright racist. And he still was, constantly and casually throwing around the N-word. What the kids didn't know was the reason James had been behind bars. He gladly bragged about how he had killed the man who raped his sister, which made him a hero. Little did the kids know that he had actually killed a 15-year-old boy who had also been a murderer. Just as it was with XO and CO, some of the kids weren't moved by his harrowing tales. They didn't buy his stories, and they found him to be vulgar and loud. Not everyone was buying his bullshit. But those kids were in the minority. By the end of his first day back with the kids, James had a following. So, who were these new kids on James's block? There was 17-year-old Carl Alsop, who went by Wreath. Much like James, Carl struggled with truth and reality. He, too, bragged about being a murderer, which wasn't true. His mother had been a police officer in Texas. When abuse issues arose in the home, he was placed in foster care. When that temporary placement ended, the abuse started to come from Carl as he began to target his brother. 
During one of these incidents, Carl's mother called the police and had him arrested. Soon his behavior turned into him running away frequently. Hoping to start fresh, Carl, his brother, and mother moved to the Portland suburb of Lake Oswego. Then there was Sarah, who was a 20-year-old who went by Akasha. She met James in the new camp just a few days after getting out of jail herself. They were soon a couple, as much as there could be one in their setting. Two other kids joined them, and James quickly dubbed the group the family. James was no longer Highlander. If it was a family member speaking to him, he would go by dad. If they were doing serious business, he was now to be regarded as Thantos based on Thanatos, the Greek god of death. Now that Grant and Greg were out of the picture, James could be the leader he always pined to be. The energy was cult-like from the start. Those involved would later say he was like a Charles Manson figure. It had been alleged that he would force the kids to do military-like drills. They would have to stand at attention before him. He would test them often. One of his favorite tactics was to tell them a secret he had made up just to see if the information would get back to him, showing if they had been loyal and quiet or if they had run their mouths. The family quickly grew. Joshua Brown Lennon, a.k.a. Scooby, joined. He had already served time for assault with a knife and was involved in methamphetamine use and sales. Other members included Cassandra Hale, who went by Juliet. Danielle Cox was Shadow Cat. Jimmy Stewart was Neo. Sarah Castor was Valkyrie. Stephen Pierce, Gambit. Corey Dennison, Twix. Heidi Keller, Little Twix. Crystal Elliott was Spitfire, Crystal Grace was Jade, and Crystal Ivy was Nyx. James loved being at the top and quickly started to emulate behaviors he had learned from his former family members. For example, he started a rumor that one of the kids was in possession of a social security number belonging to another family member, and the thief was planning on getting a credit card in their name. At the same time, two family members that were known to be in a relationship were flirting with other people. The credit card and infidelity were all punishable by death according to the family rules. James half-heartedly put out an order suggesting the three should be taken to a location and shot before burning down said building. Luckily, no one followed through on the half-assed order. Then, in 2002, a new member would find herself in James Nelson's sights and would pay dearly for her perceived disloyalty. Join us next week for the conclusion of Street Kids, where I'll introduce you to Jessica Williams, another lost youth who was simply looking for friends and community, only to encounter fear and evil. So a little on and off topic, Grant Charbonneau, I do believe, was one of the men who had his death sentence commuted uh, just last week from Governor Brown. A lot of people have a lot of feelings because one of her last acts as she was leaving was to commute all death penalty sentences to life. And it has people upset. Obviously, you know, Richard Gilmore got out just yesterday and we all have feelings saying, hey, if she can commute death sentences, why can't she change his status? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also, a lot of people are really upset about it, but as someone who's like, well, there's literally no statistical information proving that it helps or does any good for anything. Listen, I don't see the harm in it. Here's what's what what's what. It was bound to happen. Washington did it. Oregon was going to do it. We were all aware it was going to happen. She did it as her last act to be probably remembered. It's 
What's different, though, because our governor, they were not going to proceed with any of those death penalties anyway. Right. They were on death row. They were already put back into general population because of I think that happened last year. Just right. the COVID stuff. Right. Um, they were just going to sit there anyway. They weren't going to be put to death until maybe 10 years from now, if we happen to get another governor who's on the other side of things. But right. Yeah. This is not a surprise. It would kind of make more sense if she had done it, if like not if someone else had been elected. Yeah. Like that if would the be red like, governor. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, we haven't had the death penalty for decades now. I think she just was doing it to like do something like she's had yeah. a lot of negative pub- publicity and this is no different in some ways, but it's actually an action. I don't I don't disagree with it. I'm you know, we've talked about it. Right. We're not on board with it. Usually there there's definitely someone on Oregon or was on Oregon death row that I think absolutely should be put to death. There is right. no redeeming him in any way. Right. But uh, a lot of them actually I one in particular, I do not think should be on death row. So I'm happy for him. Yeah. Um, and we can get into that on another day. But <laughs> I, I do find it very frustrating that she would do that, knowing the public outrage over Richard Gilmore. Like, yeah. why not use your power yeah. to raise his sex offender level and make a lot of people feel more comfortable? Yeah. You know, as a reminder, for those of you who haven't been following, he's a level one, which means the 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 victims will not be notified and his neighbors won't be notified if he moves in next to them like this is someone who only has to register for a few months yeah when he was a serial rapist so i it's how does she make these decisions i don't know yeah and touching on that you know i want to say kudos to you because you brought a lot of attention to his case and and we've received a lot of uh People reaching out to us just shocked to learn of it because yeah. even though it's on the news, it's like, you know, not everybody watches the nightly news. And um, I don't. <laughs> and, and you know, so you found that and you were like this. People need to know about this. So I want to say kudos to Thank you for that. You. I actually I, I'm sorry. I don't know your name, but it's actually thanks to a TikTok follower who tagged me really in a, a video asking about it. And wow. then I saw another true crime creator, Crime with Court. Uh, court with a K, I believe, on TikTok. She's great. And her and I do similar videos. And she covered it a couple of weeks or a couple of days before I officially decided to do it as an episode. Right. So it was a joint effort. And That's thank cool. you for like picking up and joining in and oh, getting yeah, out there since work. I'm stuck behind a computer <laughs> until five o'clock. So I really appreciate everyone's help on that and spreading the word. And please continue to share the stories. Yeah. Share the TikTok videos. If you haven't gone to my TikTok, I did a three-part series on it. Um, some of them are very viral. Thank God. That means a lot of Portland people are going to see them. Yeah. And uh, we have an Instagram up that you can share as well. But people need to know who he is because he is dangerous. He's 63 years old. But a That's lot not of that old. I know. And a lot of people have done a lot of shitty things at 63 years yeah. old. And let's say, guys, 63 in Hollywood doesn't look that old, does yeah. it? They look like uh, someone like Tom Cruise who can do action movies. Yeah. Like He is still a very capable person. And he looks very fit. Because he was a runner. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's like, I imagine he spent a lot of time in the gym or doing, you know, in yeah. the yard or whatever. So this is what I, I, I just want to remind people. People on my TikTok even were like, well, he's 63. That's... And you get, neg- remember, if you remember that static 99 form, you get negative mm-hmm. three points. I just, I think that's silly. Josh's I think dad is in up. his 
mid 70s yeah my dad will be 80 i think next year oh, oh my, late 70s yeah. yeah he'll be 80 and he literally plays tennis every day yeah and he comes over and you I, you would not think he was almost 80 at plenty all. of 63 year olds are capable of violence yeah. and getting boners so you guys gotta share his and picture. remember he he became more violent when he couldn't get an erection mm-hmm. so being older that's more likely to be the case so and he's only been behind bars with men all this time so there's just no telling. But I just want to thank everybody who has shown up at the protests and um, handing out flyers sharing, and people sharing that have been sharing like crazy on Instagram because um, because, you know, he's going to be at that halfway house, I think, for 60 days or something. And after that, there is no telling. I don't know if he's going to come back out to Troutdale and Gresham and be he my has neighbor. Family. He has family. He could very easily be in my neighborhood. In I believe he has a family member in Vancouver, which he's not going to be allowed to live for a few more months after right. that. Um, but he does have a family member in East Portland. So right. this is really important. If you have, uh, for, uh, you know, shout out to, we had a 17-year-old girl reach out to me on my personal Instagram. She said, hey, I saw the videos on TikTok. I walk alone. I'm scared. What should I do? She needed some mm. examples of what to do. And I said, can you find someone to walk with you? If not, can you take the bus for the majority of that trip so you're at least around other people? Right. If you absolutely can't do that, you need to arm yourself with some sort of defense. Like if it's a birdie, yeah. if it's a keychain, you know, our kitty keychain, mm-hmm. so anything. And I I love that she reached out and I know there's probably other teenagers out there who And it's also horrifying. Things. Yeah, but you need to tell the people in your life like yeah. always always tell someone where you're going if you're going to be alone and Yeah. Just practice safe measures, and I, I really hope we take care of each other. Yeah. So keep spreading the word about Richard Gilmore because, you know, this isn't something that just ends with him getting out of prison. And, of course, our thoughts to Tiffany and the other survivors. I know yesterday had to be incredibly difficult. There were a lot of tears mm-hmm. uh, giving out flyers and stuff and, and uh, you know, just thinking about them because I, I can't imagine the fear and anger they must be feeling so i would also like to say that my dad is not a danger to the community no <laughs> not even close but i wouldn't want to grapple with him he's a spry young man the number makes people say oh he's old yeah. or whatever and the appearance of of that age can also be very disarming mm-hmm. too yeah like i wouldn't be surprised if richard gilmore grew a beard because he has all gray hair and maybe would, dressed old. Yeah. So it kind of changes face a little from what people kind of know from those now. eyes and are unmistakable. Look, dead shark eyes. He monster eyes. Though there's a shot of I think it's the 2008 either 2007 or 2008 parole hearing where Tiffany is talking in profile and he is sitting facing the camera and the look in his eyes. <sighs> I just can't get out of my head. <sighs> yeah. Mm, terrible. Uh, lawyer question. Have you guys ever known someone that was like said, oh, I have to talk to my lawyer, but they actually have one <laughs> like they have a lawyer, not oh, like just someone that like, they have yeah, to find. They just have someone on retainer. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> We need one. We probably will need one soon. Well, not, not for anything like any <laughs> pending cases, but 
to interpret legal stuff, right? Yeah. If we, oh, hey, if any of our listeners are a legal person yes. and you want to be our liaison and you actually have a degree, let us hit us up. Yeah. Gmail us. Murder in the rain uh, at gmail.com. Yeah. Preferably. Hard, those things are hard to read. In criminal justice. What's would an be appellant? Ideal. Well, especially Is this. That a bird? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, a piece of a piece of plastic. A piece of plastic. <laughs> oh, I love a piece of plastic. It's about the blood on his clothes. Closed. I <laughs> did it again. I did it again with my D. <laughs> you and your D. As I said before, I wasn't sure about the aspect of jubble jubble Pew 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 pew. You found the jubble depperty. I always thought she was very pretty. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> As an actress, she's very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> It gave me hope that I, too, could be an actress one day. <laughs> Wait, that's Sandra Bullock, isn't it? No, that's Murder by Numbers. Well, Sandra Bullock is also in it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. She's, she's the assistant. She's uh, McConaughey's uh, yeah. wife. Oh, I didn't realize Not Ashley Judd was Ashley Judd is McConaughey's wife. Yes. And Sandra Bullock is the assistant lady. The right, new, right, the, right. Uh, well, not assistant lady. She's also an attorney. coming back. coming back <laughs> she's to a, me She's now. like a Harvard Law person. Yeah, but she's like. I'll assist you on this. I mean, oh yeah, but yeah. She was the assistant. She's assist yeah, but they yeah. were she collaborating. Was still in That's true. She's she still, was still in school. She's still in school. That's All true. right, move I'm on. Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh great verdict in that movie. Please, please, you can go ahead and call me Danny. Oh my God, Danny! It's been, it's been so long. long. It's been a while. Danny Roll boy. It, Danny. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. The pipes, the pipes are calling. Uh, uh. Uh, 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 uh. Added level of monstrosity. So, yeah, monstrosity. Just take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. They're in prison. They can use their memories. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. and take my boss. <laughs> <laughs>